Section 5. Fear, the picture, her Britannic Majesty's representative, of On a Chinese Screen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford. On a Chinese Screen by W. Somerset Maugham. Chapters 11 to 13. Chapter 11. Fear. I was staying a night with him on the road. The mission stood on a little hill just outside the gates of a populous city. The first thing I noticed about him was the difference of his taste. The missionary's house, as a rule, is furnished in a style which is almost an outrage to decency. The parlour, with its air of an unused room, is papered with a gaudy paper, and on the wall hang texts, engravings of sentimental pictures, the soul's awakening, and Luke Fildes, the doctor, or, if the missionary has been long in the country, congratulatory scrolls on stiff red paper. There is a Brussels carpet on the floor, rocking chairs if the household is American, and a stiff armchair on either side of the fireplace if it is English. There is a sofa which is so placed that nobody sits on it, and by the grim look of it few can want to. There are lace curtains on the windows. Here and there are occasional tables on which are photographs and what-nots with modern porcelain on them. The dining-room has an appearance of more use, but almost the whole of it is taken up by a large table, and when you sit at it you are crowded into the fireplace. But in Mr. Wingrove's study there were books from floor to ceiling, a table littered with papers, curtains of a rich green stuff, and over the fireplace a Tibetan banner. There was a row of Tibetan Buddhas on the chimney-piece. "'I don't know how it is, but you've got just the feeling of college rooms about the place,' I said. "'Do you think so?' he answered. "'I was a tutor at Oriel for some time.' He was a man of nearly fifty, I should think, tall and well covered, though not stout, with grey hair cut very short and a reddish face. One imagined that he must be a jovial man, fond of laughter, an easy talker and a good fellow, but his eyes disconcerted you. They were grave and unsmiling. They had a look that I could only describe as harassed. I wondered if I had fallen upon him at an inconvenient moment, when his mind was taken up with irksome matters, yet somehow I felt that this was not a passing expression, but a settled one, rather, and I could not understand it. He had just that look of anxiety which you see in certain forms of heart disease. He chatted about one thing and another, then he said, "'I hear my wife come in. Shall we go into the drawing-room?' He led me in and introduced me to a little thin woman, with gold-rimmed spectacles and a shy manner. It was plain that she belonged to a different class from her husband. The missionaries, for the most part, with all manner of virtues, have not those which we can find no better way to describe than under the category of good breeding. They may be saints, but they are not often gentlemen. Now it struck me that Mr. Wingrove was a gentleman, for it was evident that his wife was not a lady. She had a vulgar intonation. The drawing-room was furnished in a way I had never before seen in a missionary's house. There was a Chinese carpet on the floor. Chinese pictures, old ones, hung on the yellow walls. Two or three Ming tiles gave a dash of colour. In the middle of the room was a blackwood table, elaborately carved, and on it was a figure in white porcelain. 
I made a trivial remark. "'I don't much care for all these Chinese things meself,' answered my hostess briskly, "'but Mr. Wingrove set on them. I'd clear them all out if I had my way.' I laughed, not because I was amused, and then I caught in Mr. Wingrove's eyes a flash of icy hatred. I was astonished, but it passed in a moment. "'We won't have them if you don't like them, my dear,' he said gently. "'They can be put away.' "'Oh, I don't mind them if they please you.' We began to talk about my journey, and in the course of conversation I happened to ask Mr. Wingrove how long it was since he had been in England. Seventeen years,' he said. I was surprised. "'But I thought you had one year's furlough every seven? "'Yes, but I haven't cared to go. "'Mr. Wingrove thinks it's bad for the work to go away for a year like that,' explained his wife. Of course, I don't care to go without him. I wondered how it was that he had ever come to China. The actual details of the call fascinate me, and often enough you find people who are willing to talk of it, though you have to form your own opinion on the matter less from the words they say than from the implications of them. But I did not feel that Mr. Wingrove was a man who would be induced either directly or indirectly to speak of that intimate experience. He evidently took his work very seriously. "'Are there other foreigners here?' I asked. "'No.' "'It must be very lonely,' I said. "'I think I prefer it so,' he answered, looking at one of the pictures on the wall. "'They'd only be business people, and you know,' he smiled, "'they haven't much use for missionaries. And they're not so intellectual that it is a great hardship to be deprived of their company.' "'And of course we're not really alone, you know,' said Mrs. Wingrove. "'We have two evangelists, and then there are two young ladies who teach. "'And there are the school-children.' Tea was brought in, and we gossiped desultorily. Mr. Wingrove seemed to speak with effort, and I had increasingly that feeling in him of perturbed repression. He had pleasing manners, and was certainly trying to be cordial, and yet I had a sense of effort.' I led the conversation to Oxford, mentioning various friends whom he might know, but he gave me no encouragement. "'It's so long since I left home,' he said, "'and I haven't kept up with anyone. There's a great deal of work in a mission like this, and it absorbs one entirely.' I thought he was exaggerating a little, and so I remarked, "'Well, by the number of books you have, I take it that you get a certain amount of time for reading.' "'I very seldom read,' he answered with abruptness in a voice that I knew already was not quite his own. I was puzzled. There was something odd about the man. At last, as was inevitable, I suppose, he began to talk of the Chinese. Mrs. Wingrove said the same things about them that I had already heard so many missionaries say. They were a lying people, untrustworthy, cruel, and dirty, but a faint light was visible in the East, though the results of missionary endeavor were not very noteworthy as yet, the future was promising. They no longer believed in their old gods, and the power of the literati was broken. It was an attitude of mistrust and dislike, tempered by optimism. But Mr. Wingrove mitigated his wife's strictures. He dwelt on the good nature of the Chinese, on their devotion to their parents, and on their love for their children. Mr. Wingrove won't hear a word against the Chinese, said his wife. He simply loves them. I think they have great qualities, he said. You can't walk through these crowded streets of theirs without having that impressed on you. 
I don't believe Mr. Wingrove notices the smells, his wife laughed. At that moment there was a knock at the door and the young woman came in. She had the long skirts and the unbound feet of the native Christian, and on her face a look that was at once cringing and sullen. She said something to Mrs. Wingrove. I happened to catch sight of Mr. Wingrove's face. When he saw her, there passed over it an expression of the most intense physical repulsion. It was distorted as though by an odor that nauseated him, and then immediately it vanished, and his lips twitched to a pleasant smile. But the effort was too great, and he showed only a tortured grimace. I looked at him with amazement. Mrs. Wingrove, with an excuse me, got up and left the room. "'That is one of our teachers,' said Mr. Wingrove, in that same set voice which had a little puzzled me before. "'She's invaluable. I put infinite reliance on her. She has a very fine character.' Then, I hardly know why, in a flash I saw the truth. I saw the disgust in his soul for all that his will loved. I was filled with the excitement which an explorer may feel when, after a hazardous journey, he comes upon a country with features new and unexpected. Those tortured eyes explained themselves. The unnatural voice, the measured restraint with which he praised, that air he had of a hunted man. Notwithstanding all he said, he hated the Chinese, with a hatred beside which his wife's distaste was insignificant. When he walked through the teeming streets of the city, it was an agony to him. His missionary life revolted him. His soul was like the raw shoulders of the coolies, and the carrying pole burnt the bleeding wound. He would not go home because he could not bear to see again what he cared for so much. He would not read his books because they reminded him of the life he loved so passionately. And perhaps he had married that vulgar wife in order to cut himself off more resolutely from a world that his every instinct craved for. He martyred his tortured soul with a passionate exasperation. I tried to see how the call had come. I think that for years he had been completely happy in his easy ways at Oxford, and he had loved his work with its pleasant companionship, his books, his holidays in France and Italy. He was a contented man, and asked nothing better than to spend the rest of his days in just such a fashion. But I know not what obscure feeling had gradually taken hold of him, that his life was too lazy, too contented. I think he was always a religious man, and perhaps some early belief instilled into him in childhood and long forgotten of a jealous God who hated his creatures to be happy on earth, rankled in the depths of his heart. I think because he was so well satisfied with his life, he began to think it was sinful. A restless anxiety seized him. Whatever he thought with his intelligence, his instincts began to tremble with the dread of eternal punishment. I do not know what put the idea of China into his head, but at first he must have thrust it aside with violent repulsion, and perhaps the very violence of his repulsion impressed the idea on him, for he found it haunting him. I think he said that he would not go, but I think that he felt he would have to. God was pursuing him, and wherever he hid himself, God followed. With his reason he struggled, but with his heart he was caught. He could not help himself. At least he gave in. I knew I should never see him again, 
and I had not the time to spend on the commonplaces of conversation before a reasonable familiarity would permit me to talk of more intimate matters. I seized the opportunity while we were still alone. "'Tell me,' I said, "'do you believe God will condemn the Chinese to eternal punishment if they don't accept Christianity?' I am sure my question was crude and tactless, for the old man in him tightened his lips. But nevertheless he answered, The whole teaching of the gospel forces one to that conclusion. There is not a single argument which people have adduced to the contrary, which has the force of the plain words of Jesus Christ. End of The Fear Chapter 12 The Picture I do not know whether he was a Mandarin bound for the capital of the province, or some student travelling to a seat of learning, nor what was the reason that delayed him in the most miserable of all the miserable inns in China. Perhaps one or other of his bearers, hidden somewhere to smoke a pipe of opium, for it is cheap in that neighbourhood, and you must be prepared for trouble with your coolies, could not be found. Perhaps a storm of torrential rain had held him for an hour an unwilling prisoner. The room was so low that you could easily touch the rafters with your hand. The mud walls were covered with dirty whitewash, here and there worn away, and all round on wooden pallets were straw beds for the coolies who were the inn's habitual guests. The sun alone enabled you to support the melancholy squalor. It shone through the latticed window, a beam of golden light, and threw on the trodden earth of the floor a pattern of an intricate and splendid richness. And here to pass an idle moment he had taken his stone tablet, and mixing a little water with a stick of ink which he rubbed on it, seized the fine brush with which he executed the beautiful characters of the Chinese writing. He was surely proud of his exquisite calligraphy, and it was a welcome gift which he made his friends when he sent them a scroll, on which was written a maxim, glitteringly compact, of the divine Confucius, and with a bold hand he drew on the wall a branch of plum-blossom and a bird perched on it. It was done very lightly, but with an admirable ease. I know not what happy chance guided the artist's touch, for the bird was all a-quiver with life, and the plum-blossoms were tremulous on their stalks. The soft airs of spring blew through the sketch into that sordid chamber, and for the beating of a pulse you were in touch with the Eternal. End of chapter 12 Chapter 13 Her Britannic Majesty's Representative He was a man of less than middle height, with stiff brown hair en brosse, a little toothbrush moustache, and glasses through which his blue eyes, looking at you aggressively, were somewhat distorted. There was a defiant perkiness in his appearance, which reminded you of the cock-sparrow, and as he asked you to sit down and inquired your business, meanwhile sorting the papers littered on his desk, as though you had disturbed him in the midst of important affairs, you had the feeling that he was on the lookout for an opportunity to put you in your place. He had cultivated the official manner to perfection. You were the public, an unavoidable nuisance, and the only justification for your existence was that you did what you were told without argument or delay. But even officials have their weakness, and somehow it chanced that he found it very difficult to bring any business to an end without confiding his grievance to you. 
It appeared that people, missionaries especially, thought him supercilious and domineering. He assured you that he thought there was a great deal of good in missionaries. It is true that many of them were ignorant and unreasonable, and he didn't like their attitude. In his district most of them were Canadians, and personally he didn't like Canadians. But as for saying that he put on airs of superiority, he fixed his pince-nez more firmly on his nose, it was monstrously untrue. On the contrary, he went out of his way to help them, but it was only natural that he should help them in his way, rather than in theirs. It was hard to listen to him without a smile, for in every word he said you felt how exasperating he must be to the unfortunate persons over whom he had control. His manner was deplorable. He had developed the gift of putting up your back to a degree which is very seldom met with. He was, in short, a vain, irritable, bumptious, and tiresome little man. During the revolution, while a lot of firing was going on in the city between the rival factions, he had occasion to go to the Southern General on official business connected with the safety of his nationals, and on his way through the Yamen he came across three prisoners being led out to execution. He stopped the officer in charge of the firing party, and finding out what was about to happen vehemently protested. These were prisoners of war, and it was barbarity to kill them. The officer, very rudely in the consul's words, told him that he must carry out his orders. The consul fired up. He wasn't going to let a confounded Chinese officer talk to him in that way. An altercation ensued. The general, informed of what was occurring, set out to ask the consul to come in to him, but the consul refused to move till the prisoners, three wretched coolies green with fear, were handed over to his safe-keeping. The officer waved him aside and ordered his firing squad to take aim. Then the consul, I can see him fixing his glasses on his nose and his hair bristling fiercely, then the consul stepped forwards between the levelled rifles and the three miserable men and told the soldiers to shoot and be damned. There was hesitation and confusion. It was plain that the rebels did not want to shoot a British consul. I suppose there was a hurried consultation. The three prisoners were given over to him, and in triumph the little man marched back to the consulate. "'Damn it, sir!' he said furiously. "'I almost thought the blighters would have the confounded cheek to shoot me.' They are strange people, the British. If their manners were as good as their courage is great, they would merit the opinion they have of themselves. End of chapter 13